But it's also what I love about people who choose to engage the spiritual development because then we get to be humans together. You know, we don't have to separate, oh, I have this pretty version and then I have this, you know, hidden version, you know, mm-hmm. because there's there's beauty in all that and humanity is beautiful and full and messy and yes, messy. good. Welcome to Book Therapy. I'm your host, Kim Patton. There's no way to count how many books are floating around in this world. Some are decent, some are truly terrible, and some are great. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into one great book. Together, we will discover gems of truth and encouragement to help you face your current season of life. I'm ready. You're ready. Let's get this party started. Hello, hello, friends. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I have a fantastic interview coming up for you next. But first, I just wanted to remind you, if you have not left a review, please consider getting on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen to this podcast and just sharing what you love about it. It really helps to spread the word to new listeners. Let's dive into the book. Today, we are talking about Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. I have a special guest for you. Her name is Coven Montemeyer, and she's the one who introduced this book to me. So welcome to the show, Coven. I'm so excited to be here with you, Kim. All right, Kobe Cove, tell them a little bit about yourself <laughs> and um, why why this book. Right, right. Well, um, I love your intro. Uh, my name is Coven, but because I love Kim, she calls me Kobe Cove. Um, <laughs> I met Kim in the pandemic, which is really awesome because I feel like there's not too many pandemic friends, but that's really when we became good friends. Um, I'm professionally, I'm an acupuncturist. I get to work with people on a lot of physical illness. And in my first few years of practice, I really got a clearer picture on how much physical illness impacts spiritual uh, illness and vice versa and emotional illness. And so I'm very interested in physical well-being, but also, of course, um, very interested in emotional and spiritual well-being and how all those things come together um, and impact life and relationships and so many other things. Um, What interested me in this book, uh, or what I took away from this book, was really an invitation to have a deeper relationship with God and have more meaningful relationships with believers. Um, I came into contact with this book. That's a weird way of saying it, but this book came into my life. This teaching came into my life at such a pivotal time because I was um, really separating from a church community that I had been a part of for about 15 years, which basically I grew up in this church community and I was choosing to step away at the same time or a little bit ahead of me. My parents were choosing to step away and it, it kind of felt like a lot was missing in my life. And so I, I really needed to have a clear picture of or a clear invitation to a deeper, um, healthier, emotional and spiritual and physical well-being. That's, that's a little bit there. Beautiful. We can't go as deep as I want to go. It's almost like this with every single podcast episode because these books are just so good. Um, We're not able to cover everything. But what we are going to talk about today is kind of a, 
I guess, like a roadmap or a journey from emotional unhealthy spirituality to emotionally healthy spirituality. Right away, we'll get started with emotionally unhealthy spirituality. And he gives a lot of charts in this book. And I'm a very, I'm a chart person. So every time he gives me a list, I'm like, yes, Alice, tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me what I can do right. Because I have this problem where I think that life, life can be solved with lists. So there's a list on page 22. And this tells us about top 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. So out of the top 10, we won't be able to go over all of them. But Coven, which ones stick out to you out of those top 10? Ooh, number one, it seems like it seems a little a cliche to maybe go with number one. But number one is using God to run away from God. And I think that as believers, it's really easy for us to do this. And it's also really easy for us to invite other people to do this with us. And so it doesn't, we kind of create this lack of accountability around growing past this symptom. Um, And on first reading this, like using God to run away from God, it doesn't quite make sense. Um, But as we start to look into what that can look like even deeper Um, We start to see that potentially in ourselves. And I like this book as well because of the lists, because it makes it really easy to just read through and kind of get a gist of it. And so some of the things he highlights on what this symptom of emotionally unhealthy spirituality is um, doing God's work to satisfy me, me, and not him. Um, So it's very ego-based ministry, Um, demonstrating Christian behaviors so significant people think well of me. Another one on this list is using biblical truth to judge and devalue others. Mm. And so it's kind of creating a gospel that really serves me and not others. Wow. That actually goes with number six too, doing for God instead of being with God. Mm. And we'll talk about um, achievement addiction, but this one is a big one. We feel like we work for God. We struggle to define like relationship with God, like what it is to have a relationship with God. And also um, number five, dividing life into secular and sacred. I think our relationship with God is secular and sacred. And the more I'm learning about who Jesus is through reading other books and talking with people and diving into what the gospel really means, I do feel like the wall is kind of coming down between the secular and the sacred for me. You probably, when you first met me, don't admit anything, (laughs) but when I read this list, I was like, oh my goodness, this is embarrassing because the secular and sacred was just, it's always been a huge thing for me, um, especially like with music, because I just feel like I'm two different people. I feel like I'm Christian Kim and human Kim. And so this book, I think, helps bring those two together. Yeah, I love that. Um, I think this book and, and all of um, Mr. Scazzaro's lists is very vulnerable for anyone reading it. <laughs> it's very embarrassing if we want to use that word um, because it's pointing out the things that we often like to protect and like to disguise um, or even pretend like those things aren't there. And that's what I – I love – about the book, but it's also what I love about people who choose to engage the spiritual development. 
because then we get to be humans together. You know, we don't have to separate, oh, I have this pretty version and then I have this, you know, hidden version, you know, mm -hmm. because there's, there's beauty in all that and humanity is beautiful and full and messy and yes, messy. Good. We see on page 46 that people make excuses about why they can't dive deep into their emotional well-beings. He says he hears excuses like, I'm not very good at feelings. I don't really know what I'm feeling. Sometimes I'm flooded by emotions that disorganize and confuse me. So he's quoting the author of Emotional Intelligence, Daniel Goleman, on page 43, when he classifies these eight main families of emotions. We have anger, sadness, fear, enjoyment, love, surprise, disgust, and shame. We're not going to Brene Brown this and go through the Atlas of the Heart and cover every <laughs> single emotion, but talk to me a little bit about what you have learned about our God-given emotions through this book and through these past few years. I want to also say before we go go on, there's so they categorize eight of these main emotions, and then there's subcategories of each of those emotions, and um, a while ago, I was sitting in a, like, observing a, a child's therapy session, and the counselor was trying to get an idea of what emotions the child was able to explain, and they did this with, with feeling stones, which um, I have adopted into my life as well now, because um, sometimes it's hard to feel, and it's easier to have a feeling stone, <laughs> but the feeling stones have a bunch of, like, faces on them, and the counselor asked the child, um you know, what feeling is that, you know, and the child was like, oh, that's a happy feeling. Okay. And so then they put all the stones that looked like the happy feeling into one category. And then, you know, the child had separated these other feelings. She said, what feelings are these stones? And she said, this is sad. Okay. And so there's a lot of different expressions on the stones that categorize sad. And so the child was able to only categorize three emotions. Okay. So happy, sad, and angry which meant anything the child felt was being pushed into those brackets. And so, you know, reading through this book, I had to start categorizing, like, what what are my emotions? What are the things that are, are coming to the surface for me? What's the story behind those emotions, right? Because in this book, um, the author really gets into um, breaking down family history and looking at how your family related to certain emotions. Because oftentimes that's rooted in how we've been taught to relate to that emotion. And so, you know, anger might be an emotion we feel it's righteous for us to suppress. And it might be that way because of how we grew up, how, how our anger was interacted with, you know, when you were a child becoming angry. How did your mother, father, pastor, brother, sister, whatever, relate to you in that moment? And um, depending on how that, how you were interacted with, it can create a lot of patterns where you feel like you can't feel certain ways or you shouldn't feel certain ways. And we create shame around that. Um, and so I think what I, what I love about this um, section of the book is it's just highlighting the importance of identifying an emotion and then the next step would be kind of clarifying what's there for me. Why is this emotion coming up so much? Or why am I feeling a, um, shame about this emotion? Your sister is to blame for one specific instance. 
since I moved from Florida to Georgia and I had to leave all of you and my beloved friends behind. And she, she said, I hear you being really busy and trying to do things. And what I'm not hearing is that you're, you might be a little sad. Mm. <laughs> and that sounds like her. <laughs> she might not have even said sad, but she's like, what's underneath all of this busy, busy, busy trying to do things and create a community so quickly after you just moved there, you're trying to recreate what you had in Florida. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> she said, you might be suppressing a little bit of sadness from, you know, leaving and moving. And I was like, well, thanks a lot for telling me that and dropping this big heavy thing on my lap when I just called you for like writing advice. And here you are just, but she was, she was right. And I've thought about that so many times of just this idea of what's hiding underneath. And there's always something hiding underneath, but that doesn't mean I, figure it out. I just told Kevin the other day, I'm feeling this way. I don't know what's underneath. People are asking me to try to find what's underneath, but I don't, I don't know. So that's just the complexity of emotions in general. I appreciate you and your sister because you guys are always helping me, you know, get to the root of things and not just push, push, push ahead, but like sit down and think about what's actually going on. Yeah. Sitting with it. It's not necessarily something that, um, you know, I'm very good at, but this book was an invitation. One of the things I liked about this, it was an invitation to do it because I think a lot of times we can, just like he says, you know, in one of his lists, he says a lot of people are like, oh, it's not, we don't have the time to do it. And so it's easy for us to kind of dismiss even sitting with something as, you know, it's not a priority, you know, God's got bigger things for me to do. And I think that's such a lie because we're actually devaluing what God created in us when we say that there's no time for us to sit with it. You know, I'm into physical and and spiritual well-being and and I have a physical pattern of my shoulder hurting anytime that there's, you know, an intense grief that I'm processing. And without my shoulder hurting, I really wouldn't sit with grief as much as I could and should. And so, but the moment I feel my shoulder hurting, I'm like, ah, oh, oh man, for real? Like, I didn't have time for this today. And, you know, like, I'll be really honest. Today, uh, you know, I woke up at 4 a.m. My shoulder was just locking up and I was like, no, no, I have things I want to do. You know, I have things that don't include, you know, mm-hmm. sitting here and asking myself, like, where, why am I sad? You know, but, but also I'm, I'm laughing. I'm making jokes about it, but also, you know, God has given us so much physically, mentally, emotionally to build a deeper understanding of ourselves, And also it's an invitation to know God more. I deeply believe, and this is one of the principles in this book. When we get to know ourselves more, we get to know God in such a beautiful way. God really wants to get to know us. And so when we when we avoid the emotions, um, we, we are missing out on an aspect of God that's just a treasure. He says on page 79, many people struggle with an achievement addiction. It never seems like enough. We consistently feel inferior. 
Many of us know the experience of being approved for what we do. Few of us know the experience of being loved for being just who we are. This ties into what you were just saying of like the wholeness of our emotions, our mental well-being, and our physicality. I love the concept of growing in Christ and being loved for who I am and not what I do. How do you feel about that? How does that characteristic of being human resound with you? So I think this addiction um, that he's referencing here, it kind of goes back to one of the 10 symptoms of an emotionally unhealthy spirituality. And that's living life without limits. You know, I think it's very egotistical for us to uh, even want a life without limits where we can just do whatever, say whatever, gain whatever without any consequences without any different pace and I think it's very it's a very kind of capitalistic mindset of you know production is is king right if we can produce enough then we can make enough then we can be enough then we can have enough value and I think that very if we want to say secular for a second that very external um, view of production is king has infiltrated our, our gospel in a lot of ways as Christians who live in America, which is a capitalist country. The beauty of God is, is in the first book of the Bible. He's teaching us about rest. Like that's principally okay. like, hey. Okay, name a podcast listener. Right? Yes, of course. Of course. Like the first book of the Bible, God's like, hey, the goal is rest, okay? Like this, the this is enough. You know, knowing when enough is enough is exactly you know what that what that symptom of living life without limits is trying to combat. And I think we often don't know when enough is enough. We don't know our limits, and we definitely don't want to respect our limits. So it's so much easier for us to become addicted to achieving because then we have that kind of like superficial uh successful feedback where it's like oh yeah this feels good I just did something good and so now I have to do the next good thing instead of being able to sit with I'm good regardless of what happens out here regardless of whatever like I achieve or don't achieve or produce or don't produce like I'm, I'm still good like God looked at us as creation and said it was good and so I think it's it's so much easier to just to not sit with with the the internal goodness, but seek an external goodness. Um, but it's it's like the superficial satisfaction. It's not the the depth of satisfaction that you know we'd like. And the cover of the book is very ironically and very perfectly suited. It's mm-hmm. it's an iceberg, right? Mm-hmm. So you see like two thirds of the iceberg below the water, and I think that's very much the invitation to digging in a little bit is is seeing what's below the surface i wonder if um god's idea of rest you know he he put that in motion like you said from the very beginning and i brought up the bama podcast because you and your sister introduced me to that podcast and he's talking through genesis and the first story obviously is the creation story and he kind of highlights how god restrains himself at the on the seventh day and says, okay, I, I know when to stop creating. Um, I thought that was really cool because he's God. He could create forever, but he stopped. He said, all right, this is good. This is beautiful. 
now now the seventh day is for rest and that template is for us what i'm curious about and you kind of you kind of basically said it was god's idea of rest and you are enough ties in with how we deal with our emotions teaching us to sit with what we need to sit with instead of rushing through and doing 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 he has provided a template of no you're good you work hard and then you rest you you feel things you do things and then you stop is that a pattern you use in your daily weekly monthly routine um well definitely a pattern that i'm trying to to incorporate more it's very anti me it's it's against i think my dna genuinely i think it is against my dna to think like that, to feel like that, and to live like that. It's it's probably against a lot of human DNA to engage life that way, engage God that way, which is what makes the gospel and an understanding of God so radically oppositional to humanity. You know, it is also what to me provides it as a solution to humanity is because it's it's so against how we would naturally be wired to live. It takes a lot of effort and faith to like intentionally like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to listen to that made up story about me that I just love to live out in my mind. Like that's not a truth. That's not a truth about me or the character that God's put in me. So I'm going to choose not to do it. But I thought about it for 20 seconds. So that's fine. You know, like we have to like actively be like, okay, no, that's, that's not how God's designed me. A lot of what I am telling myself recently is you're doing better. Like you're not, you're not all the way there yet. Obviously you never will be, but, but Kim, look at yourself before faced with this exact same situation before, how would you have responded? And I can tell myself, honestly, okay, I'm, I'm improving. I've, tweak some things in my mindset to where I know I would have handled that differently before, but because of my perspective shifting over the last few years, I can see my heart is softening in certain ways and I am I am learning and growing. And so while I get frustrated that I'm not where I want to be, I have to give myself a little bit of credit for just taking those small steps along the way. Yeah. Thank you for listening to another episode of Book Therapy. Today we talked about Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. And I interviewed my good friend, Coven Montemeyer, and this is just part one. So there's another episode coming that will be part two, and it'll finish off our conversation about this book. Peter Scazzaro has many resources available online, so I will put them in the show notes, and I will see you next time.